The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, a popular audio magazine ceases publication next month. What's wearable for women this fall? And Project 3000 may be looking for you. Welcome to ACB Reports for November 2007. Since 1979, many blind and low vision consumers have read and contributed articles to Playback, an audio cassette magazine published by Ed Potter, a retired college teacher from Goldsboro, North Carolina. Playback, along with its supplemental recording known as Playback Underground, will be published for the final time in December. In his own words, Ed shares a brief history of Playback magazine. I was sitting in my in-house studio one night and I wondered what I could do to get people to call me up when they came across an interesting piece of technical information or maybe an 800 number for shopping. Then I thought that maybe people would do that if I were to produce a mag and send it out. So in September of 1979, I sent out playback number one. I sent it out in its own mailer. That is to say, people supplied a mailer for it to go out. Nobody subscribed because I didn't know how long it was going to last. What they did is they tucked a couple of quarters into the mailer with the tape when they sent it back, or if they wanted to keep the tape, they just gave me two bucks and sent the mailer back empty. I don't remember when we started taking yearly subscriptions, but it was probably two or three, four years after that. But even then, we still offered for a while the option of listen to and return. In September of 1983, Miss Sue wanted her mother to come and live with us, but where to put her? I, at the time, had two rooms in the house for my tape and my record collection. It became obvious that my two rooms were the best-suited places for them. One is a bedroom and the other is a sitting room. We had an outer building which had once been used as a garage. I called a former student who did wonderful remodeling work. In three weeks, he totally transformed this old garage building with my wonderful 20 by 20 foot studio out here. Playback 26 was the first issue recorded in the studio. I was the only voice on the magazine for almost two years. And then contributions and reports began to kind of arrive, so I didn't have to do all the work myself. For about six years, our magazine was on a 60-minute tape, and then we changed to a 90-minute because there was so much great participation. In 1989, I began to regret that some of the articles sent in didn't make the main mag. I hated that people went to all that trouble of sending something in only to have it not used. My answer for what to do about it became what I whimsically call the playback underground. From the beginning of the underground, there was no narrative, just tone-indexed contributions of whatever came in which did not make the main mag. At its beginning, playback was unique with a clear mission of sharing information and sources. And we were the only one that seemed to be doing what we were doing. Computer magazines on tape began to appear with Joe Giovanelli's Baud in 1983, followed by five or six others, but none of them seemed to last very long because for some reason they didn't get member participation the way playback seemed to. And I'm not quite sure how we did or why we did, but we did. But as computers arrived and the net appeared and chat rooms and downloads and podcasts and the like, our mission became a bit more muddy. 
we were no longer the only game in town. We probably weren't the best game in town either for hands-on features of this new technology. But for some reason, people seemed to like to hear me prattle on, and so we hung around uh, doing what we could. But it ultimately came clear to me that our magazine just wasn't needed anymore the way it was. And I wasn't as good as other people in doing the reviews and talking about all of this new technology. Over a year ago, I made myself face the fact that we were really nearing the end of our run. I didn't know just when that would come, but I knew that life was going to move on and that playback, as enjoyable as it might have been, needed to make room for progress. So between the May and July issue this year, I decided that we should wind it up in November. I don't know how I'll feel in January. For 28 years, the magazine and you have been such an important part of my life and work. And I'll need to pounce on some other project and get cracking with something else. I've received far too much praise when the real credit should go to you who constantly send in reports and information. I was just the guy who happened to put it all together and threw in a few little contributions now and then. So let's not define this as Ed Potter's success. It's the success of a lot of commonly interested people who were willing to do what they could to make the mag continue for 28 years. And I think that's very special. That was Ed Potter, publisher of Playback Magazine. He will continue to operate his mail order company, Playback Marketing. ACB Reports for November continues with a look at Fall Fashions for Women from Lynn Cooper. We talked about the 60s being the new theme for menswear, Mike. Strangely enough, we're going to go back about 20 years before that for a big look for women, and that is a menswear look from the 40s when Greta Garbo and Audrey Hepburn and all those gals were wearing very wide leg pants with pleats and cuffs, and they were really mimicking in many ways men's look. Well, that is one of the biggest, most dramatic looks that we're finding in women's wear. Although, Mike, I must admit, there's not a lot that's popping up and grabbing me by the ears and saying, Lynn, wow, I'm so new, come over here. It's like menswear, dramatically subtle, quite severe, not a lot of bells and whistles, and if there are, they're usually on the accessories, maybe on the neckline we're seeing some things, or if we're going to have a really dramatic statement, it will be in a coat. They're calling them statement coats. Colors, gray for women is huge. Once again, don't worry if you have other colors because they have to change it somehow, as we know. So if you want to invest in something to keep very current, do it in accessories and inexpensive ones. This is a time to hit the lower-end stores. Silver is the metal. And jewel tones, if we do find the bright jewel tones, Mike, the fuchsia, the cobalt blue, which is a real bright blue, yellow, orange, those are shown, and they are either in a very loud coat or a very full dress, and they are 100% of that color. There's not a lot of mixing and matching. Outerwear, as I said, that statement coat, and when you really think about it, when you walk into a room, a party, what have you, people see your coat first, so that is where you're really making a statement. 
And this year, the designers went hog wild. Many of them walked uh, women down the runway wearing oversized coats with feathers. Feathers are a really huge accessory. They are not terribly practical as they break off, as they fall off, as they cannot be easily cleaned. But they are being shown plaid, big, bold plaids, kind of the plaids that we probably all wore and hated wearing in uh, grade school. Bold patterns. And as I said, jewels are being affixed to these coats and dresses, but these are once again pieces that are really bold, really fashion forward. So those are the statement coats. And a more practical, really new hip look is a cape. And that's fun because they can be found just about anywhere and they do not have to be terribly expensive. Once again, for these kind of statement pieces, we don't want to spend a lot of money unless we've really worked out the cost per wear. Cape should at least be to the uh, hips. They can be to your knees. But uh, a cape like has been shown over the years. It doesn't have to be in loud colors. It can be, but it can be in just a subtle black or gray. And that's a really big look to wear, especially on a fall day with a, a turtleneck under it, pair of black slacks or jeans, and throw on the cape. It's a nice statement look. And once again, if these things are not practical for your lives, adjust them in a way that they are or just say, nope, that's not for me. Jackets biker chick look. Uh, you know, we talked about the motorcycle jackets for men. That's really big for women. If you're going to invest in, in a secondhand shop, is a great, great, great place to look for these. You can get them for a song, and they're nicely uh, worn in and uh, weathered and the kind of look that designers would hope to have on their item, and they're going to be far, far less. Structured jackets, now we're talking about jackets that you would wear to work with a suit or maybe just a skirt or pants. They're structured. They're not the big oversized jackets they are to the hips or just above and vests for women are big that kind of exaggerated shoulders and uh, the tweedy menswear look is being seen in jackets for women dresses the hourglass shape is definitely back and then as i said the jewel details on the neckline the hem these are usually plastic stones which are made to look like jewels or other beading and what have you that decorates the neckline or the sleeve line or the hemline. And the hemlines for women are being shown two, three inches above the knee, at the knee, or the alternative for the young gals or the adventurous older mature gals are micro minis. Tunics are big, but what we're really seeing a lot of and what you're going to be finding even at much lower price points are the bow blouses, the blouses that were uh, big maybe 10, 15 years ago. The blouse buttons all the way up to the neck, and then you have a big bow that you can tie with the uh, fabric. Bows are also big on coats, handbags, and shoes. I just saw, I think it was Valentino that did some handbags were actually in leather as part of the bags were big, big, big bows. Once again, these are very fashion forward, but those bow blouses are a nice way, worn under a suit, to be really appropriate in most business environments and yet to be fashion forward. And knits in sweaters and all are big, chunky, right out of grandpa's closet. They're really, really big and exaggerated. And once again, a lot of designers... Stella McCartney, for one, going back and doing what almost looked like a vintage ski sweater from the 40s. Skirts are slim pencil skirts, as we call them again, or else very full 
stopping at or above the knee. Slacks, there are really two cuts. One that's carrying through, Mike, is the real ultra-narrow. Not a great idea if one has a little hippie stuff going on or a little thicker thighs. Great for the young gals, but really great look to cover up a lot of sins is the 1940s wide-leg cuffed and pleated pants. This is very, very big, and it's very slimming. Now, you don't have to have them cuffed. Usually they are pleated, sometimes they're not, but that's a great idea. You can wear them with flats, or you can wear them with a little bit of a heel. Accessories then, Mike, we go to shoes, and the real big look is menswear-inspired, and they're very strangely, oddly, on high, high, high heels. So imagine a men's lace-up shoe on a very, very high heel. Not terribly practical. Booties and boot shoes are huge. If you want to make an investment, booties are the rage. That is a shorter boot that uh, can be worn as a shoe. And the best look of all, which remains, are the flats, and they're known as ballet flats. And the reason they're called ballet flats is very simply because they mimic a ballet dancer's shoe. They don't have a lot of art support. Most of them don't. Some manufacturers do put art support in, but you have to be careful if you're going to be doing a lot of walking. But if you are doing presentations, for instance, as I do speaking, I'm on my feet, ballet flats, with a little bit of adornment at the toe are a really nice alternative, ladies, for career, and uh, they're easier on the feet. Handbags, oversized bags are big. They were showing huge, huge, huge bags, but probably the biggest look is clutches, and those are handheld Uh, sort of envelopes. You can get these very inexpensive to very expensive. They're carried for day and night. Now, for our listeners, they may not be the most practical because they don't tend to be the most secure. They can easily fall out of one's arm. But if you're going out for dinner, if you're going out for an event, it's a great idea. Skins, a faux and real snake and crocodile skins are being shown. Really big look in shoes, too. Patent is huge. It's great in, of course, patent like a trench coat. I just found a a really inexpensive patent trench coat that looks just like one of the designers off the runway, and I think I paid $40 for it. Miscellaneous accessories, belts are really big, and these are wide belts that go at your real waistline, and these go over dresses, over sweaters, and they're even being shown over coats. Hats are big again, a cloche style, which is a style from actually probably the 20s. Very fashion-forward, not terribly practical, but if you can do it, go for it. And berets are big, and those are easy to be worn by just about everybody. Gloves are long, and what we call 10-button gloves, and that is the way you determine the length of a glove back when gloves buttoned up. And those are long gloves over the elbow. Sunglasses, Mike, are oversized again. That big Jackie Onassis look, the really big exaggerated glasses are the rage in black frames. And tights are an opaque black or a dark color, very thick, so you really can't see much of the skin underneath. Not only is that a great look, it's very good to match that with the hemline once again because then we have a longer look, but they're warm. And then uh, we also see people wearing leggings. And finally, Scarves are big, and as I said, they're in big, chunky knits. So if you have a grandma or a friend who's been saying, I want to knit you a sweater, well, then now's the time to take her up on it. Makeup, keeping in a 40s theme, we have a very intense ruby red lip, just like out of the 40s, with a pale face, very soft 
sheer makeup, and then eyeliner. That was real big in the 40s with a very gentle shadow. So the emphasis when people look at you would be on the lips. Hair is just like the 40s movie stars, gently flowing, curvy, not curly, but just wavy, medium long, to the shoulders, probably just above, very reminiscent of the 40s screen stars. And Mike, that is our trend reports pulled from the pages of fashion magazines and stores for fall and winter 2007-2008. Lynn Cooper developed the Mirrors Project as part of her personal and professional effort to make the world accessible to all people and to offer positive reflections to people of all abilities. These personal image segments heard on ACB Reports are an ongoing part of the Mirrors Project. Lynn has established an email address through which to receive your feedback, comments, and suggestions regarding these personal image segments. That address is mirrors1usa at yahoo.com. Roger Peterson of Mountain View, California, has been blind since birth. At age 50, Roger learned that the cause of his blindness was a condition known as Labor's Congenital Amaurosis, or LCA. It is estimated that at least 3,000 individuals in the United States are blind because of this condition. Project 3000 is an organization whose goal is to locate as many of these people as possible in order to conduct extensive research which will lead to a better understanding of and possible treatment for LCA. Roger Peterson explains. You know, I always grew up believing, well, you're blind, get over it, don't worry about it, you don't need to go to the doctor, and so on and so on. But once I found out what my condition was and I started communicating with other people with the condition, I kind of got into a network and I've actually attended some conferences and it's been really uh, useful to me just to be involved in the pushing back of the frontiers of knowledge, as I like to say, and also helping parents whose children have labor's congenital amaurosis, and I'm going to say LCA from now on realize that uh, it's not the end of the world, and if you don't get cured, you'll still live a life and so forth. You didn't discover that this was what caused your blindness until age 50. How did you find out? I noticed that I had lost what little tiny bit of vision I had, pretty much. And as I was starting to lose my hearing, I said, well, wait a minute, I've been told I have cataracts. If I get these cataracts taken off, maybe I'll have a little bit of vision that I can use for mobility and so on. So I had a cataract removed, and in the process of that, the doctors told me that I have LCA. I got to talk to a guy who's a combination ophthalmologist and geneticist, and so I found out it was a genetic disease. In the process of getting involved with these organizations and conferences and things, it turns out that there is genetic testing going on, and they're finding the genes that cause labor's congenital amaurosis. So far, there are 10 of them. So there are really 10 different genetic uh, diseases that look similar clinically. So now the University of Iowa, they have a genetic lab there called the John and Marcia Carver Genetics Laboratory. And uh, they have a means of doing this genetic testing efficiently. So they've started to try to get people who have LCA as their diagnosis to give blood samples to them so they can try to finish out the discovery of all the genes and how they work and how they're different and all that kind of thing. Because some people that have LCA have other things besides blindness, like kidney failure or seizures or whatever. At just about this time, it happened that uh, a couple of people, one is Derek Lee, who plays with the Chicago Cubs, and uh, another fellow named Wick Grosbeck, who's uh, one of the co-owners 
children with uh, LCA. And they've put some money together and used their good offices to get other people to contribute money and form this Project 3000. The 3000 means that they think there are approximately 3000 people in this country that have LCA and they'd like to get blood samples from all of them sent to Carver Labs so they can really finish doing the genetics. How did they come up with the number 3000? I don't know exactly. I've seen various estimates of uh, prevalence. We know that it's a recessive disease, so one assumes that the genes themselves are much more common than that number, but you know, you have to get the same gene from both your parents in order to get it. What they've done is put some money into this system so that people who can't afford to pay for the cost of the genetics can still send in their blood and get it tested. What they really would like is for the local physician, preferably an eye doctor, who has made the diagnosis to send in the blood so that they can compare the clinical diagnosis with the genes they find in the blood. How many of these 3,000 people has this organization located thus far? My understanding is that it's getting close to 800. Since LCA occurs at or near birth, there are probably a lot of people who are adults who are like me, have accepted blindness and are okay with it and getting along fine and don't go to doctors and don't really care very much what their condition is. When was this condition given the name LCA? Uh, Dr. Leber, it's L-E-B-E-R. He was a German doctor in the late 19th century. He was the first one to describe Leber's congenital amaurosis. He also described a couple of other diseases that have his name. There's a disease called Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy which is a totally different disease, totally different genetic uh, mechanism and so on. The only thing it has in common is that the same guy described it. The A in LCA, what is that word again and how is it spelled? It's amaurosis, A-M-A-U-R-O-S-I-S. And it just means blindness, you know, lack of vision. Labor is congenital, congenital means at birth, amaurosis. I've often interpreted amaurosis to mean blindness in the presence of a more or less normal eye. In other words, blindness that's not caused by your eye not being there or by your eye being malformed or something. We think that they may be more prevalent in certain populations around the world, but when it's recessive, a disease or a condition can go through generations and never appear. Let's talk more about the organization, Project 3000, that is trying to find the people in the United States with this condition. How are they doing that? They've undertaken a number of uh, public relations kinds of things around the sports and so forth. For example, I know that they've had Project 3000 days at baseball games, both the Chicago Cubs and its farm teams. I discovered that one of the Chicago Cubs farm teams is the Boise Hawks in Boise, Idaho, which is where I was born. On September 1st, they had an event there. and They had a kid with LCA throw out the ball and everything. They're contributing funds. They're raising funds. As I understand it, there's a foundation connected with the University of Iowa that's actually handling the funds. Besides Project 3000, which incidentally is project3000.org on the web, Derek Lee has his own foundation, which is called the First Touch Foundation, and that's also on the web at www.1sttouch.org. They're just uh, making use of the channels that are available to them, The organization that I have been involved with over the past few years that has held the conferences I spoke of is a group called the Foundation for Retinal Research. And I understand Project 3000 and Foundation for Retinal Research are going to sponsor the next conference next summer. 
Foundation for Retinal Research was uh, developed by a couple in the Chicago area, uh, David and Betsy Brint, whose son was born with LCA uh, about, I think, 10 years ago. They are also on the web at tfrr.org. They are also raising money and uh, putting in into research, including this research. So there are really a lot of handles that we can uh, get. I recommend that patients or doctors, if you will, get onto the project3000.org, and uh, they'll be able to find just about any information they need in terms of how to send blood or what the genes are and what they do and what we know about them so far and all the rest of it. Are there specific symptoms that uh, someone might want to know before they go to a doctor to say, is this what I have? Nowadays, it's getting diagnosed in infancy between the ages of one and three, and it's typically that the parents notice that the children don't see well, don't follow visual things and so forth, and they also commonly include nystagmus, which is kind of random movements of the eye, the inability to fixate because the eye is always kind of moving. I think the traditional definition of LCA includes that the eye looks pretty much normal, but it just doesn't work very well. And it's also quite common for people with LCA to report that they had some vision in their childhood, that they could read large print, for example, up until age 20 or so, and then their vision started getting worse and they lost pretty much all the vision they had, although it's not always that way. Sometimes they don't have any vision from the very beginning. When I was a child, I could see the difference between the sidewalk and the grass, and I could see big houses and trees and stuff, and lights, things. I never could see color. Now I have just, you know, if you shine a really bright light in my eye, I see something, but have basically no usable vision now. I think that the definite diagnosis comes from an ERG, an electroretinogram, which... Uh, involves putting a contact lens with an electrode in it on your cornea and flashing lights at you and seeing whether there's a recordable electrical response from your eye. Typically, with people with LCA, there isn't, even if they can see somewhat. Is hearing loss tied to this condition normally, or is the well, hearing loss in your some, case something else? I have some hearing loss, but the thing is that my mother and my grandmother and my son all have some hearing loss, so I suspect that that's the more common Thing than the LCA. So the LCA does not drive the hearing loss? I don't think so. It could be that we'll find that there's a version of it that's like Usher's. Usher's syndrome is a combination of hearing and vision loss that's connected to retinitis pigmentosa. And uh, there have been suggestions that maybe there's something like that with regard to LCA because it's related to RP. It's another retinal degenerative condition. It may turn out that the genes are somehow linked together, the genetic processes and so forth. But as I say, there are some people who have some hearing loss. There are some people who have seizures. There are some people who have uh, learning disabilities or other neurological kinds of things. And there definitely is a subset that has kidney failure, which is called senior Loken's syndrome. I've known some people who have LCA who've had to have uh, kidney transplants. So we're trying to sort all that out. And that's the reason for the uh, Project 3000. Anyone who thinks they may have this condition either have their eye doctor check it and confirm it as much as they can to the point that they then would need to contact an organization such as Project 3000. Right. And if anyone wants to talk to me, send me an email and we can uh, possibly talk by phone or whatever. My email is peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N, at org. 
That's Sierra Victor Papa Alpha Lima dot org. I'd be happy to arrange to talk with them by phone if they like about the whole issue. I mean, one of my goals with this is to get the blind community and the eye research community talking to each other so that the blindness community supports eye research and at the same time we get the people who are raising money for eye research not to say things that are insulting to blind people. I don't expect to get cured at age 65, but, you know, I've also been advising the parents that... Uh, it's okay to anticipate a cure or to anticipate some effective treatment. But meanwhile, your kids need to learn to function the way they are. They don't need to sit in a rocking chair and wait for the cure. The way you prepare for a potential cure is by being the best you can be as a blind person. That was Roger Peterson of Mountain View, California. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world, this is ACB Radio.